We have children in the room today. Isn't it great to have children here? Yeah. And if you are a child, and some of you don't know whether you are or not, that's your problem. But if you are a child and you'd like to come and join me here, I want to have a little something for you today. It's not a present per se, but I want to give you a talk that's specially for you. So if you're a child, come up here and just sit down here, will you? Find your way here. It's a blessing to have children in our church. So good to have you all here. Just sit down. Find your place to sit down. Make yourselves comfortable. You can come on up a little closer. Come on a little closer and make room for the other children. Thank you, parents, for bringing your children to the worship of the Lord. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We didn't have children's church when I was growing up, so that tells you how old I am. There was no children's church. In fact, children, hey, you guys can kind of sit there. Yeah. Cole, if you want to come on up. Bregan, if you want to come up here, get a little closer, okay? Come on. That a guy. That's the way to do it. <coughs> in 2004, none of you was alive in 2004. That's a long time. But my wife and I had been on a trip to Dallas, and we were coming back. It was in December. It was right before Christmas. In fact, we were coming back on the day before Christmas Eve, and we were very excited. Are any of you excited that Christmas is on the doorstep? Yeah, we were excited. But when we got about 150 miles from here, over near Van Horn, the weather got very bad. And the roads grew icy. And we didn't even know if we were going to be able to get back home. And we were so anxious that we wanted to get home. So we drove in El Paso. And by the time we got downtown El Paso, hey, you know where downtown El Paso is, right? By the time we got down there, the roads were so slick that I said, I've got to get off the road. And that was a big mistake, by the way. I got off the road and then I started up Mesa. In Mesa, you know, it's a really steep hill. You know how it is? And I got going up there, and I, my car began to slide, and I was able to slide onto a side street. And my wife had strep throat. She was not feeling well at all. And I was thinking, what are we going to do? So I began to look for a place. We were near Providence Hospital, so I thought maybe we can just sit there until tomorrow and things clear up. But they said, there's no room in the hospital for you. (laughs) So we went to several other motels around the area, and no room, no room, no room. And we didn't know what to do. Of course, I was praying, and my wife was being very kind not to say, you blew it again. But, but we were wondering, and I, I said, look, honey, let's get out of the car, and I think we might find a place to stay right over here. And she was walking. The wind was blowing. It was so cold. And a man, whose name I can't remember, he showed up in the car, and you know what he said? He said, do you have a place to stay? And I said, no, we don't. He said, would you like to come with me and you can stay in my wife's and my apartment. I said, are you serious? He said, yes. And he took us there, and he kept us all night. It was wonderful. We were safe from the bad weather because someone took us in. Now, we know the story of Jesus' birth. 
And Jesus was taken in his mother's womb to a place called Bethlehem. And his foster father, his adoptive father, Joseph, was very kind to Mary. He took good care of her. And they came to what we would call a motel. There were no motels, but it's what we would call it in Bethlehem. And he came and he knocked on the door. And guess what? The innkeeper said, there is no room. You know that story? Let me tell you a modern day story about a boy named Wally. Wally was in the third grade, but he had had to repeat two grades before. So he was 10 years old in the third grade. So he was bigger than all the other children. And he was not very good as a student. And the teacher wanted to do a play about Jesus' birth and Mary and Joseph coming and finding a place for Jesus to be born. And so you know the story. And when the time came for Wally's part in the play... You know who he was? He was the innkeeper because he was so big. None of the other children could do it. And he was not real smart, so he couldn't memorize long lines. The only line he has was, there is no room. And he had to use a deep voice, there is no room. So the person playing Joseph knocked on the door, and he said, there is no room. And then as the play was going, the, man, the boy playing Joseph and the girl playing Mary turned around and began to walk away. And what Wally was supposed to do was once he said there is no room, he was supposed to go back inside. But he stood there. The teacher was wondering, what's he going to say now? He only has one line. And this is what he said. He said, come back. You can have my room. Isn't that sweet? He made room for Jesus in his life, didn't he? And what Christmas is about is Jesus coming to become a person who is human. He was God before he became one of us. And he came and he wants us to make room in our heart for him. That's what we should do at Christmas. Agreed? Let's pray. Thank you, children, for listening so carefully. Lord, thank you for reminding us through the song which Mike just sang that we are called, all of us, regardless of whether we're young or middle-aged or old, to make room in our heart for you. So we ask these, that you would be with these children and they would make room in their heart for Jesus now as children and for the rest of their lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, children, you can go back quietly to your parents. Thank you. I saw a license plate on the rear of a car, and it was framed with these words around its edges. If you're lost, hyphen, don't follow me. (laughs) The reason being that person sensed that he or she was lost also. Jesus Christ says, I am the way. Follow me. Please take your Bible and turn to the book of Luke, the 19th chapter. And this morning, we're going to take a look at a great episode in the life of Jesus. It occurs the last week of Jesus' life. And Jesus is making His way 
to Jerusalem. He passes through a very prosperous city known as Jericho. And when he comes there, he encounters a man whom you probably know by name, at least his name is Zacchaeus. So let's read the story beginning with verse 1 through verse 10 and then go back and look at what Jesus' mission is. Jesus was a man on a mission. He came with a specific purpose. We're going to see what that purpose is in this passage of Scripture. I'm reading today from the New American Standard Bible and encourage you to follow in whatever version of the Bible you have. Luke 19.1 says, And he entered and was passing through Jericho, and behold, there was a man called by the name Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax gatherer, and he was rich, and he was trying to see who Jesus was. And he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus, for Jesus was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus' mission is spelled out here. It's simply a continuation of the way in which God has related to human beings as far back as we can tell. In fact, you probably know that the Bible says that there is no one who seeks God. God takes the first step in every person's salvation, in every person's coming to know Him. After Adam had sinned, God shows up on time, as usual, to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening in the Garden of Eden. And he cannot find Adam. He knew where Adam was. He's God. He's all-knowing. But he said, where are you? And then from behind some bushes, he hears this response. We're here, and I hid from you because I was afraid. But God came to find him, didn't he? And in this passage of Scripture, we see what Jesus says about His mission. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Speaking through the prophet Ezekiel in the 5th to 6th century B.C., hundreds of years before Christ came, this is what God said. There was a lack of commitment on the part of the pastors of the people of God at this time in the nation of Judah. 
And God said, I will seek the lost and I will bring the strays back and then I will set one man over them, my servant David. And David will feed them and David will be their shepherd. Well, 500 years had passed since David had died. So what was God speaking of through the prophet Ezekiel regarding the Messiah? He was speaking that there would be a descendant of David, a son of David who would come. In the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 8, Jesus is described in, among other ways, in this way. He's described as a descendant of David. If you trace Jesus' physical history all the way back up, his lineage, he's descended from David. So Jesus was this person. And so God says, I'm going to seek you. He says it through the prophet Ezekiel. And he says it today. And he seeks us today in fulfillment of his promise through the prophet Ezekiel in the person of Jesus Christ, just as surely as God sought this man in question, Zacchaeus, through Jesus, he does seek us today as well. Let's take a look, first of all, as it relates to Jesus' mission, the person whom Jesus seeks. It's very important to understand that he seeks an individual. He wasn't seeking all the inhabitants of Jericho, and it was a very highly populated place. He is seeking one man at this point, and this is Jesus' way. He seeks us as individuals. He seeks those who are lost, which raises a very important question. What does it mean to be lost? Well, it means simply to be out of place, to be misplaced. This parable which we read from the 15th chapter of Luke, Jesus tells it about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. And he comes to the end of the day. He's counting his sheep. He counts 99. He knows he has a hundred. Perhaps he did the count again. And maybe a third time. We don't know. But he knows there is a sheep missing because he knows his sheep. And so he leaves the 99 sheep in what is called the open country, the open pasture, and he goes seeking this lost sheep. And he finds the lost sheep, and he brings the lost sheep home. It's a picture of our Lord, isn't it? The Lord is our shepherd. We know that from the great 23rd Psalm. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And listen to what Jesus says about his relationship to his sheep. He says, I call my sheep by name. Do you know that the Lord knows your name? This is no ordinary shepherd. Jesus isn't. He's the great shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. He knows us by name. He personalizes God to us. It's awesome that he saw fit to seek you and me when we were lost. That's the way he treats us. The person in question in this passage of Scripture, we know his name, Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a little man. 
with deep pockets, I might add. He was a rich man. Look what the text says in verse 1 and 2. He entered and was passing through Jericho. Jericho was one of three designated cities in Israel in the day of Jesus, which were places that people would go to pay their taxes. Now, the tax system was governed by Rome. But what Rome did, they appointed people who were citizens, we would say, of Israel, among whom Zacchaeus was one. They appointed people to serve as tax collectors. And interestingly enough, in the book of Luke, every time we encounter a tax collector, that tax collector is painted in a very favorable light, very positively. Many times we don't think that way, do we, about tax collectors. But in the case of Zacchaeus, he's the only one who at least begins to be painted in a negative light because he had become rich because he was a chief tax gatherer. What does that mean? Well, there was a system in place in Israel at this time put in place by the Roman government where there would be regions and every region would have a chief tax gatherer. He himself did not really collect the money. Rather, he hired people and he gave them a quota of taxes to receive from people. And then after they had fulfilled their individual quotas, they had a certain percentage of what was left that they had kept for themselves that he got part of. So they would come to him and they would bring a big portion probably of what had been collected. And they had cheated the people out of what was rightfully theirs because they were authorized to take as much as they wanted from the people once the quota that Rome had set for itself had been met. So he became wealthy because he cheated the people out of their money. Second thing we know about him as a result of that, he was a resented man. He was very unpopular. That's understandable, isn't it? Someone who cheats people out of their hard-earned money. And it was very negative for the Jewish people because this was a Gentile government. And they didn't like Zacchaeus because, remember, Zacchaeus was one of their own. And he had linked up arms with the powerful empire of Rome to make life more difficult for the citizens of Israel. And so he was resented and consequently he was rejected. Not simply resented, but also rejected. Zacchaeus was an outcast. And we can understand why, can't we? Because of the way he mistreated his own people in cheating them. He was also a resourceful person. We see this in verse 3. If you would look at verse 3, the Scripture says, and he was trying to see who Jesus was. May I stop right there and ask you to think with me a moment? He was trying to see who Jesus was. Why do you suppose he was trying to see who Jesus was? Well, I would suggest he had heard that Jesus was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. 
Jesus liked to hang out with people like him. Here was a man who was not like most of the people in Israel. Remember when Jesus was approached by some Sadducees and they were trying to catch him and trap him? And they said, holding a coin up, they said, whose face is on this coin? And Jesus said, well, it's Caesar's. And he said, are you going to pay? They said to him, are you going to pay taxes? He said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus paid his taxes. Maybe he was even cheated by some of those tax collectors. But nevertheless, he cared about them. And Zacchaeus probably had heard that one of his disciples, as Jesus' disciples, his close associates, one of the inner circle of apostles was a man named Levi or Matthew, and he himself was a tax collector. And Jesus had brought him into his inner circle. And what that told him was, this is a man I want to see. I want to see if it's true what people say about him, how he is drawn to people who are sinners like me, and we are consequently drawn to him. In the middle of verse 3, the Scripture goes on to say, He was unable to see Jesus because of the crowd, for he was small in nature. Can you, with me, imagine in your mind's eye what's taking place here? I can see Zacchaeus. We don't know how tall he was, probably under five feet. Men were shorter in that day. And remember, he's much resented. And he hears Jesus is coming. The road into Jericho is lined on both sides with people who are eager to see Jesus. And it's like a parade atmosphere. And here he is. He's trying to sort of inch his way through so he can get in front of the crowd so he can get a good look at Jesus. But they won't let him. He probably experienced a lot of bruising that day as he was kept back. A lot of jabs in the abdomen and solar plexus as they were keeping out of the way. But he was resourceful. He was so eager to see Jesus He looked for another way. Verse 4 says, And he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus, for Jesus was about to pass through that way. The sycamore tree is not like a sycamore tree that we're familiar with. It's more like a live oak tree, but even with a greater circumference, a thicker trunk. It would have wood bark on the outside that would look a lot like our oak trees in this area or another area of the country would look like. But the limbs were very short distance off the ground and they went out straight out, parallel to the ground. So he knew about that tree and he made a beeline for it He saw it in the distance. Christ was not there yet, so he runs, he shinnies up the tree, and then he goes out on the limb that overhung the roadway. He wanted to see Jesus. He was resourceful. When people begin to sense a need for something more in their lives, they're wanting to understand life, and they begin a quest Jesus was on a quest. We know that. What was Jesus' mission? To seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus was lost. He was out of place. He was not in the sheepfold of Christ and of God the Father. 
And so he works hard to get into the position to see Jesus. One more thing that's suggested in the passage is not stated as clearly as these first three things, and that is he was a regretful man. He had a sense of shame and guilt because of what he had done to all those people for all those years in cheating them out of money that was rightfully theirs and not his. Look at chapter 19, verse 8. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything... Stop right there. The word translated if would better be translated since. He knew he had defrauded lots of people out of a lot of money. He was aware of that. And he was regretful because of it. He was sensing that in his life. These are symptoms of a lonely man, someone who's outcast because of the way in which he has lived, the selfishness which has consumed his life. And that is true of all of us before we come to know Christ. We may not have defrauded anybody of any money, but we know there's this gnawing sense of incompleteness in our lives. Do you ever feel that in your heart? How you believe there must be something more to life? And you are somewhat like this man Zacchaeus. You are desperately seeking to see if Jesus just might be the person who can bring fulfillment to your life. Well, now let's go and look at the second thing about this passage of Scripture related to the mission of Jesus. We've looked at the person whom Jesus is seeking. It's a person, and it's a lost person, a person who is out of place. God created us for His glory. He created us in the first place that we might know Him. But the second thing is the purpose of Jesus seeking the lost is to save him. The word save is sort of viewed by many people in even our tradition, the evangelical tradition, as a word that's really too old to use anymore. We find other words to use it. But it is a biblical word after all. And it is something which Jesus says in his words, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. From what? That's a good question. Here's what Jesus seeks to save us from. He seeks to save us from the wrath of God. You say the wrath of God? What does that have to do with Christmas? What does that have to do with Jesus' mission? It has a lot to do with Jesus' mission because God the Father and Jesus the Son and God the Holy Spirit are holy. God is holy. And by virtue of His being holy, He cannot turn His head and ignore the reality of sin. God must bring sin to justice. And that is why Christ came. This is what Christmas is all about. God sent His Son into the world in order to secure our salvation. And He had to identify with us. That is Jesus. Please turn to the book of Hebrews, the second chapter. 
for a closer look at Jesus identifying with us. Hebrews 2.14 Since then, the children, that's talking about people, us, share in flesh and blood. We're human. He himself, this is speaking about Jesus, likewise also partook of the same. In other words, he became one of us. Jesus is fully human, having pre-existed and continues to exist as God for eternity. Jesus became one of us. And believe it, Jesus still is human. When He was raised from the dead, He was raised in bodily form. He is human. He had a different kind of body. It's what the Bible calls a spiritual body. Do you remember when Jesus met with His apostles? It's recorded in the 24th chapter of Luke. He met with the apostles after he'd been raised from the dead. And the Scripture says, Jesus said to them, and they were wondering, are you real? Are you really human? And he said, can flesh and bone be touched and felt? And he let them touch him. He was no ghost. He was no spirit. He had a spirit, but he was not simply spirit. So Jesus become one, became one of us and still is one of us. He retains His humanity to this day. And He wears it with great pride, I might say, because of what He did in His flesh. In the middle of verse 14, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We see Jesus identifying with this man, Zacchaeus. He went to his house and the people grumbled about it. They didn't like the fact that Jesus was going to be the guest of a sinner like Zacchaeus. But Jesus identified and he is called on more than one occasion by his detractors as the Friend of sinners. Jesus is our friend. He was a friend of Zacchaeus. He's our friend today because he came to seek and save us who are lost. And he, in great friendship, brings us back to where we should belong. And that is in the fold of God, to be a sheep of God, a sheep of Jesus Christ. And he did his best work of identification after he was born and lived and he went to the cross. Because it's, as this says in Hebrews 2.14, through death, that's speaking of his death on the cross, he might render powerless the devil who holds the power of death and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. There's probably more than one person in this room this morning who's afraid to die. The very thought of dying chills you in your soul, in your spirit. Jesus came to deliver you from that kind of response to the thought of death. And you will be able to say with the Apostle Paul, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How did He acquire the victory? He 
identified with us on the cross. The Bible says in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, God made Christ who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, He was no more one of us than in that moment. Because when He died on the cross, He gave His perfect life as a substitute for our sinful, imperfect life. He exchanged His perfection for our imperfection. His perfection for our imperfection. In in identifying in this way, He made it possible for us to be saved from the wrath of God. If you'll go back to the book of Luke, this time to the 12th chapter. Listen to what Jesus says. It's very sobering. But it's important that we consider this. When we consider our lostness and what Christ has done for us by becoming one of us, dying on the cross, being punished by God the Father for our sin, we should have been punished. Jesus did that for us. Look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 12. And I say to you, my friends, stop being afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom you are to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, on the face of things, it would look like Jesus might be talking about the devil. But when you examine it more carefully, that's not what he's talking about. The devil doesn't have the power of death. He has the power of causing fear in our lives before we come to Christ as it relates to death. But God the Father is the one who is spoken of here. Remember, He's a holy God. And in His plan for saving us from our sin, He sent Jesus to die in our place, to be our friend. As Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And of course, Jesus was talking about Himself when He said that. Well, let's move forward and ask a question. It's a very important question for each of us. What steps must a lost person take to be saved? Remembering, Jesus has taken the initiative. He's on a rescue mission. It's the greatest search and rescue mission in all of history. There will never be anything that compares to it. Here's the first thing we must do. We must receive Jesus Look at verse 6. What does it say? Jesus says to Zacchaeus, Hurry up and come down. I'm coming to your house today. And what does he do? There's no hint of hesitation. What does he do? The Scripture says, He hurried and came down. And he received Jesus, how? Joyfully into his house. It was a great day for him. He knew what he had been looking for was right before his eyes. He knew that even though he was lost, he couldn't have put that in words. That's what he was sensing. He knew that Jesus was there to give him what he had been looking for all of his life and had not found any answer. So here's the first step. In order for us 
to receive forgiveness, to be saved from our sins and the wrath of God. We have to what? We have to receive Jesus and with joy. It's not sort of, well, maybe Jesus, maybe not, you know. I'm not sure about you, Jesus. You receive him with eagerness because of who he is. The Bible says in John 1.12, But as many as received him, talking of Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Do you know what receiving is? It's real faith. It's the idea of opening your life, just like Zacchaeus opened his home and invited Jesus in. And with great joy, he did that. And that's the way we come to know Christ and therefore have eternal life. We receive Him into our lives. And He gives us eternal life. It's phenomenal. But here's the flip side of receiving Him. We have to repent of our sin. If you will look at verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, we don't know exactly how much time passed between Jesus' arrival in Zacchaeus' house and His leaving. And when He left the language here would suggest that Zacchaeus makes a public declaration. And it's a declaration of repentance. Do you know what repentance is? Literally, the word to repent is to have a change of mind, which results in a change of heart, which then results into a change of lifestyle. I'm going to get there in just a moment. But what do we see Zacchaeus saying publicly. He's not just saying this privately to Jesus. He's saying it publicly. We know from the language which Luke uses to describe the event. And then he begins his statement with a confession of Jesus as Lord. He says, Lord. Notice that. Lord. Do you know what Lord means? It means master. It means king. It means sovereign. It means boss. Think of your own synonym using those four designations. But this is what Jesus did for us. He gave us the opportunity to be found, but the beginning point is we say to Him, Lord. That's the point of repentance. Because who had run the life of Zacchaeus until this day? Who was in charge of it? Zacchaeus. And that's true of your life and my life. Before we are found by Christ and we receive Christ, we're running our own lives and we make a royal mess out of it most of the time until we receive Christ. So, the beginning point is seen here. And then after he says, Lord, then he makes a remarkable statement. This probably would indicate We don't know for sure because we're not privy to the conversation that Jesus had with Zacchaeus. But I would be sure that this popped up in the conversation. Because remember, how is Zacchaeus described in the passage? He was a rich man. And so Jesus said what he had said to his disciples almost from the beginning of his association with them. He said, A man cannot serve both God and money because he'll either love the one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other. You just can't do it, Zacchaeus. You've been loving money. Am I right, Zacchaeus? Yes, Master. You're right. 
Do you know, Zacchaeus, the second commandment of the Ten Commandments? Yes, Master, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any graven images. And the idea here is idolatry. And the Bible says in the book of Colossians, it says this. It says, greed is idolatry. And that was Zacchaeus' middle name. Zacchaeus, greed, whatever followed that. He was a man who loved to collect money. And he probably counted his money regularly. He had that as his idol. And we see a great turnaround, do we not, in his life? Because what does he do? He gives half of his possessions to the poor. According to the customs of the day, it was thought that at the very highest level of devotion to God, a follower of the one true God, an observant Jew, would give 20% of his income to the poor. What do we see this man doing? He says, I'm giving half of him. That would have been a big sum of money. I'm giving half of it to the poor. But he doesn't stop there. He says, since I have defrauded others out of stuff, then those whom I have defrauded, I'm going to give four times more. In the book of Exodus 22, 1, and it's followed up. You see the passages here. It talks about in that passage and also in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 5. It talks about how when a person was guilty of defrauding someone, the person had to give whatever that person had defrauded the victim of. If it was an animal, you give the animal back. And then 20% worth of that animal's value. So it was a 20% penalty that would be paid by someone who defrauded. If a person had thieved, had stolen, then the person, if it were four sheep, would give back four sheep. One sheep, rather, give back four sheep. If it was an ox, would give back five oxen. So what do we see him doing? He's going the extra mile, isn't he? He's in effect admitting, I'm not just simply a defrauder, I'm a thief. So I'm going to give back four times as much to anyone whom I have defrauded. That's a picture of repentance, isn't it? There's a change in lifestyle. It's an inevitability, quite frankly. If a person really comes to know Jesus, the person is changed, fundamentally changed. And the change comes in the form of that person becoming a new person. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any person is in Christ, that person is a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. When predicting the new covenant in Christ, this is what God says through the prophet Ezekiel hundreds of years prior to Christmas being instituted when Christ became one of us. This is what God said. I will remove from you your heart of stone. That's exactly what Jesus did in the house of Zacchaeus. He didn't literally live, put his hand down and remove it, but figuratively and actually spiritually, that heart of stone was taken out and a heart of flesh, meaning a heart that was alive, was placed 
in place of that old hard heart. And then the scripture says, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to be careful to obey me. This is what happens. One of the sure signs that a person has been given new life, has been, as Jesus said, born again, is there's this desire to be different. It's more than a desire. It's a compulsion, really. It's the work of the Spirit of God in us who moves us in that direction. It's awesome to think about. I'd like to share a modern example of something that I've been talking about here in the last few minutes. It was an ad that was taken out in the East African Standard newspaper in Nairobi, Kenya. Here's what it read. All debts to be paid. That in bold letters. I, Alan Harangui, alias Wanik Harangui, of Post Office Box 4380, Nairobi, have delivered and dedicated services to the Lord Jesus Christ. I must put right all my wrongs. If I owe you any debt or damage personally or any of the companies I have been director or partner of, and then he lists the companies by name. He says, please contact me or my lawyers. And he gives the name of the law firm which represented him and gives the address And he says, contact them for a settlement. Now, this is blow you away. No amount will be disputed. He's not going to get someone to represent him in court. He's saying, hey, come and get it. If I've defrauded you, and this is the way he closes his ad, in all capitals, God and His Son, Jesus Christ, be glorified. I wish I knew the sequel to that story. It's a good one. I guarantee you, it's a good one. Once more, I want to read what appears here before us. Repentance of sin leads to a change of mind, which leads to a change of heart, which leads to a change of lifestyle. Can I take a moment or two to talk about that? Leads to a change of mind. The Bible says that when we receive Christ, we receive the mind of Christ. We're not as intelligent as Christ is, but we have at our disposal His mind. Why? Because we have the life of Christ. The book of Colossians says that our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. And it goes on to say in that same passage in Colossians 3, Jesus Christ is our life. Does that make sense to you? It does if you understand who Jesus describes himself as being. Jesus says, I am the life. I am the resurrection of the life. The Bible says, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. The reason that there's a change of mind that leads to a change of heart because Christ has been made Lord of that person's heart, resulting in a change of lifestyle, is because the life lives in us. And He will work His way out through us and minister to people through us. It's awesome to think about.
Well, when Jesus saves a person, He gives that person a new identity. Verse 9 of this passage, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus had a fundamental change. He became a son of Abraham. He had been a chief tax gatherer, a thief, a cheat, an insensitive, greedy miser. And all of a sudden that all changed when Christ came and he was received with great joy into the home and the life of this man Zacchaeus. His new identity was a son of Abraham. And if you know what that means, it simply means a son of faith because Abraham is the example of faith that's lifted up in both the Old and the New Testaments in our Bible. There's something that would easily escape us. Look at verse 9 again. Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Now, the Bible does not ever speak of God's having grandchildren. He only has children. So, I came to Christ out of a household where my father and my mother were followers of Christ. They were the most influential people in my pilgrimage into faith in Christ. Christ was in them, and they sought to lead my sister and me by being salt and light. And my sister and I both, as children, had a genuine conversion experience. Christ sought us and He found us through our parents. What a wonderful thing to think about how this works. And undoubtedly, as this passage teaches, the household of Zacchaeus, there's no mention of a wife. There probably was a wife. If there was a wife, there would have been children more often than not. And there would have been some servants. He was a rich man, remember? And he would have had perhaps even some slaves. His household, it was not just he who was sought and found and saved. It was all the mem- were all the members of his household. It reminds me of... Paul and Silas in Philippi. You know the story. They'd been beaten because of the preaching of the gospel. They were in prison. They were singing praises at midnight, probably not just because they loved the Lord, but because they were so beaten up they couldn't get rest and they were praising the Lord. And the jailer fell asleep. He was awakened by an earthquake. He heard no noise coming from the bowels of that prison. And he thought, they've escaped because the doors on the prison had been broken by the earthquake. And then he heard their voices, and he was relieved. He was about to kill himself because he knew the penalty for letting such a thing happen, all those prisoners released, would have been so awful for him. The torture would have been terrible. But he was relieved. And then he has a question for Paul and Silas. He says, Sirs... What must I do to be saved? There's that word again. What must I do to be saved? And what do they say? Believe, that's receive, 
on the Lord, that's repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Remember what Paul writes in Romans? If we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead, what will the outcome be? We will be saved. That's what the outcome is when we trust in the Lord like that. And then he goes on to say, Paul does, and your household. Every person has to trust Christ for salvation for himself or herself. But we can set an atmosphere in our homes. If we know Christ and we have unbelievers in our household, we can set the atmosphere. Why? Because Christ indwells us. He lives in us. And His life is powerful to save people through people like you and me. Would you bow your head? If you already have been found by Christ, He has sought you and He has saved you, would you just take a moment to thank Him for that and ask Him if He might use you to find others who need Him and eternal life? Would you just ask the Lord as we finish this year up and look forward, thank Him and ask Him to use you. And then if you're here today and you know that you've never really received Christ by acknowledging Him as your Lord and have turned away from doing life your way in favor of doing life His way, if you've never done that, The Bible says today is the day of salvation. So in the privacy of your heart, you can just tell the Lord, Lord, you know me better than I know myself. And you know, Lord, that I have not truly given my life to you. I've held back. I have not repented of ruling my own life. Lord, Please forgive me. And please come into my life. I welcome you. Gladly I welcome you, Lord. And I want to be your follower for the rest of my life. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for hearing these prayers. And we pray, Lord, that we would be more mindful of your mission. And be more grateful as a result. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.